Well, let's pray as uh, we open up the word to learn more about Easter. Lord, we, we come before you right now. 2,000 years ago, events happened that are very hard to wrap our minds around. And we can't do it fully, but help us to do it a little more today, I pray. Help me to be in sync with your word. Uh, Fill me, Lord, even more with love for your word, love for you, love for the flock here, love for people who don't know you. And come and save people today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, Easter obviously means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? Uh, it's tied in with spring, and I love this time of year. I like to ride my mountain bike up in Santa Teresa uh, foothills, and this is the time of year when, when uh, the California poppies are like really orange with really green. I just love that. This whole spring thing is totally happening. Uh, it's also time for, you know, Easter eggs and and chocolate bunnies. In fact, my wife, Jan, was at Trader Joe's yesterday and said that the line at C's Candy almost went out to the door of people picking up their chocolate bunnies and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, Easter means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But the heart of Easter has to do with helping us with something that we all fear to some extent. That's the heart of, heart of Easter. And what that is is we all fear death. I mean, we all are going to die, and we know that death is going to profoundly change our lives. It's going to profoundly change your existence, but we're not sure how. And so we all have this event, big event, that's certain in our futures, and we don't, we don't know what it means. And so, to a greater or lesser extent, we all feel fear about the reality of death. And so religious leaders and philosophers have thought and pondered, and, and they've come up with answers, like the Buddha said that death involves you know, reincarnation after reincarnation after reincarnation. Finally, you'd reach a point where you'd be swallowed up into impersonal being. Okay? Um, the atheist Bertrand Russell, he believes that we're just matter. That's what you are. And so death is the end. Period. That's just it. Uh, Confucius said, don't worry so much about death. Let's just focus on living harmonious honorable, loving, respectful, kind lives here. Uh, Muhammad said that the faithful Muslims would be at death welcomed into paradise and everybody else would face judgment, eternal punishment. So lots of different answers, but do any of them know for sure? I mean, for one thing, Those are four very different contradictory answers, right? For another thing, how do they know? All of them taught these things before they had died. I mean, they all died, and their bodies were laid in tombs, and their bodies are still in the tombs. But this morning, I want to tell you about a man who, like all of those religious leaders, philosophers, he also taught about death. Explained what he thought death was about. And he, like all of those men, died. And like all of those men, he was laid in a tomb. But unlike, unlike 
all of those men. He conquered death. He rose from the tomb, from the grave, literally, physically, bodily, and he promises that he will do the same for you if you will receive all that he wants to do for you, if you will trust all that he promises to be to you, he will do the same for you. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus Christ, who we've been singing about all morning. Now, to see this in the scriptures, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd love you all to have a copy of the scriptures. I hope we have enough Bibles this morning. Uh, Maybe share with somebody else. We'd like you all to have a copy of the scriptures that you can look at. 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 961 in the Bibles that we're passing out. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers who lived in Corinth, which was a Roman colony. Written in the 50s AD, a little bit after when Jesus had died and, and risen from the dead. And Paul was an apostle, which meant that he was he had seen the resurrected Jesus personally, and he was specially gifted by Jesus to write and speak truth directly from God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 26, he tells us about death and resurrection. Look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, start in verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, now in verse 22, Paul helps us understand why we die. I mean, why do we have to die? Why does everybody die? And his answer in verse 22 is that death is part of God's punishment for our sins. That's the reason. Look at the beginning of verse 22. He says, as in Adam, all die. We're all in Adam, right? Adam's our four, 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 four father, which means that by nature and by choice, we've all sinned like, like Adam sinned. Do you understand that you've sinned against God? Uh, you may have different categories for that. Some people think sin's just like a, a list of do's and don'ts, and there, there are lists, but there's something much more fundamental to what it means to sin against God. And I love how uh, the prophet Jeremiah describes it in, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, 11 through 13. Don't, don't turn there right now, but here's how he describes the core issue of sin. Very powerful. He says that there's a God who is perfectly good, perfectly loving, wise, powerful, overflowing with goodness towards us, and he's created us. He created you. Amazing thing. And he made you so that your heart thirsts would only be fully satisfied in him because he's infinite glory, majesty, love, joy, goodness, peace. So here you are created by God. Your heart can be fully satisfied and is only fully satisfied in him. So it's like we're thirsty people and Jeremiah says God's a fountain of living water. We're thirsty. 
He's a fountain, cold, crisp, clear, living water. So here we are, created by God to be fully satisfied in him, worshiping him, knowing him, loving him. Here we are, and what have we all done? All of us refuse to drink because we were too proud to humble ourselves before our creator. We've all turned our backs on God and tried to carve out for ourselves little little water canisters of our own, like power or money or entertainment, or sexual pleasure, or whatever it might be. So here these things are, and you look inside, they're bone dry, but here we are with these little things we've tried to manufacture for ourselves when God is an overflowing river, fountain of living water. And so every one of us has turned our backs on God and sought our heart satisfaction in everything else except for God. Isn't that true? I have this morning. It's true for all of us. We've, we've all done that, and we all have that as something that's in us by nature and by choice. And God is just. Slow to anger. He loves us. He's revealed himself to us, but he's just, and he must punish sin. And so death is part of God's punishment for our sin. That's why we all have to die. Death is part of God's punishment. Now, does death mean the end? No, it does not. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So death is not the end because in Christ all shall be made alive. Who is the all? They'll be made alive. Paul gives us two clues. Verse 22, it's those who are in Christ. And then he states it slightly differently in verse 23. It's those who belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then death will not be the end. Death will be the beginning. He will make you alive. That's what he will do if you belong to Christ. Okay, burning question. How do we belong to Christ? Now, it's at this point that we need to be careful because we've all been influenced by a lot of man-made religions. And, and, And they all tend to say the same thing, namely that the way you connect with God, the way you become belonging to Christ or the way you you have a relationship with God is by being good enough or by living in harmony enough or by being spiritual enough, right? But the problem is, the bad news is that none of us are able to do that. All of us are too sinful to do that. We've all turned away from God too much to pull that off. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. Even though we've all turned our backs on God repeatedly again and again and again, you got to hear this. God loves us. He loves you. Deeply, passionately. He has great compassion for you. So much so that even though we deserve punishment, he sent his own son, Jesus. And Jesus came, lived amongst us, showed us God's real. Look at these miracles. Look at the way he teaches. Look at his love. This is God in the flesh. So he lived among us. He died on the cross in order to pay for the guilt of sin. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death. And because of what Jesus did, if you will simply do this, 
own up to the fact that you've turned your back on God and that you're guilty before Him. Just own up to that reality and turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him. Trust Him to forgive you for all your sins. Trust Him to start to change you by His power. Trust Him to to satisfy you with His love and His presence. If you will turn and put your trust in Jesus, just like Dave, I think, said this morning, the moment you do that, three amazing, powerful things will happen to you. And, And this could happen to you right now here this morning. Three things will happen to you. One, the moment you turn to trust Christ, all your sins will be forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins. The slate wiped clean. Forgiven. The moment before that, guilty. The moment you trust Christ because of his payment for sin on the cross, the moment you trust Christ, forgiven. That's the first thing that'll happen. Second thing that'll happen, his power will come into you and start to change you. You don't become perfect, okay? But he'll start to change you. You'll become more loving. You'll become more generous. You'll care for the poor more. You'll be turning away from things that would dishonor Christ. You'll speak the truth. You'll be patient. You'll start to be changed by his power. That's the second thing that'll happen. Then the third thing, the moment you trust Christ, he will bring the gift of the Holy Spirit give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, pour the Holy Spirit into your heart, and He, the Holy Spirit, will make Jesus' love so experientially real to you that for the first time ever, you will be completely satisfied. Some of you have been looking for this all your lives, and you will never find it until you find it in Jesus Christ. The heart thirsts, the longings that you have will only be satisfied in knowing Jesus Christ. And the moment you trust him, you're completely forgiven. His power starts to change you and he gives you the Holy Spirit by whom you will be completely satisfied in experiencing his love. That's how you belong to Christ. Okay, now, just a quick quiz here. Um, do, you become, do you belong to Christ by being good enough? Thank you. Okay, a few of you got that. Okay, good. The only way you can become belonging to Christ is by putting your trust in in him. It's the only way. And when you trust Christ, those three things will happen, and you, because you belong to Christ, then you can be absolutely confident that death is not the end for you, but Jesus will make you alive. Like he said in verse 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also, I'm sorry, for as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All who are in Christ, all who belong to him. Okay. Now, when does this happen? When does this happen? Death doesn't mean the end. If you're trusting Christ, he makes you alive. When does that happen? Paul tells us in verses 23 through 26. Read those again. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, so when will you be made alive? Notice verse 23. 
It's at his coming. It's at his coming. Underline those three words. At his coming, those who belong to Christ will be made alive. So his coming, end of history, second coming, it's at Jesus' return, that's when you'll be made alive. Okay, now we've got to kind of sit back and get the big picture so we see the scope of first coming, second coming, and what's happening. So the reason Jesus came to the earth was to redeem a vast multitude of men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Okay, purchasing their salvation on the cross, redeeming them. A vast number that Revelation says no one can count. That's why Jesus came. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's why we've got people in Morocco today, every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's why we've got missionaries in Central Asia. That's why Jerry and Jan Yuli have their granddaughter and grandson, I'm sorry, son and daughter and granddaughter um, in Russia's Bible translators for unreached people groups. So it's every nation, tongue, and tribe, but a vast multitude no one can count, every nation, tongue, and tribe, including your neighborhood. Okay, so Jesus came to do that. He lived, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he gave the church the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, then he ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. And so since Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, the church is on the move, sharing Christ with people, preaching the gospel, making disciples of all the nations, loving, serving, praying, advancing the gospel, seeing people get saved. And then when this vast multitude that no one can count has been saved from every nation, tongue, and tribe, then Jesus will return. He'll come back visibly. Scroll, sky like a scroll will part. He will come down. Every eye will see him, and he will be here. And he will come back, and the first thing that he will do is to destroy all authority and power that's been raised up against his kingdom. And so he will take Satan and cast him into hell. And he will take all the demons and cast them into hell. And he will take all those who've persisted in rebellion against God. And he will cast them into hell as well. So all authority and dominion and power which has been against him will be cast into hell to be punished forever. Okay, but then there's still one enemy left. There's one enemy that hasn't been conquered yet. And it's death. Here's why. Here's how it works. The moment that you die, let's say you were to die tomorrow, at that moment, death will tear apart your spirit from your body. Your body will go into the grave or be cremated or whatever, and your spirit will immediately go to be with Jesus Christ. And at that moment, you will have joy face-to-face with your Lord, your Savior, your Master, Jesus Christ, you will see him face to face and you will be captured with a joy and a fullness which is great as it's been here in worship and in fellowship with him, much, much greater there. You're going to be captured by that. But as great as that is, that's not the whole package that God intends for you. Because there you're still going to be a disembodied spirit, right? And God didn't make you to be a disembodied spirit. God made you a spirit with a body, Death has torn apart your spirit from your body. So when Jesus comes back at the second coming, if you're trusting him, you'll be with him in paradise, you'll come back with him, but you need your body. God doesn't want a disembodied bride, right? He wants spirits and bodies joined together. So at that point, then, what Jesus will do is he, by his power, is going to raise your body from the dead, transform your body. No matter you know, where the molecules are or whatever, he's going to raise your body from the dead, resurrected body, which isn't, the, it, it'll be your same body, but much, much, much better. We know this 
because we can see what Jesus' resurrection body was like. He wasn't like Casper the friendly ghost, you know, cruising around. He, he, He was recognized. He could be touched by doubting Thomas. He was able to eat broiled fish. We're talking about a body and an even more physical body than we have now is what you'll receive. It's going to be even more physical, even more real. It'll be a new heavens and a new earth, not just kind of flimsy little things on harps with, or on clouds with harps, whatever. It's going to be a physical body. No more weakness. No more pain. No more death. A beautiful, it'll be you. We'll all recognize you, but we'll say, whoa, what happened to you? Okay, it'll be an awesome thing. And we'll say, Jesus raised us, because you'll know too. Okay, so at that point, then, finally, death has been conquered, because death will have torn asunder your spirit and your body. That's not how God wants it to be forever. Your body will be raised, joined with your spirit, new, massively physical body, awesome physical body, shining with the glory of Jesus, and you'll enter in with the redeemed to the new heavens and the new earth to be in this kingdom of love and peace, and light, and presence, worshiping God the Father, and the Lamb that was slain forever and ever with all the great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what's going to happen. So, when does this happen that you're made alive? It'll happen at the second coming. The moment you die, if you die tomorrow, you'll be with Jesus in paradise as a spirit. That'll be very, very, very good, okay? But that's not the whole package. Okay, now, how can you be so sure this is even going to happen? Here's this book. Here I am. Who am I? What do I know, right? How can we be sure this is going to happen? Because if this is true, this would change everything for you. Either because you, you don't yet belong to Christ, or because you do, and this is so encouraging to you. This will change everything. So how can we know this is true? Now, too many people think that, that God just basically says, blind faith, just believe it. It's not what God says. All through the scriptures, God gives reasons, God gives evidences, God gives demonstrations. And he wants us to understand those reasons, demonstrations, evidences, and on the basis of those, he wants us to trust him. True faith is never blind. True faith sees what God has done it. You can see that right here in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ, underline these next two words, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So here Paul says there's an order to how the resurrection is going to take place. And the first step in the order is Christ's resurrection. And Christ is resurrected as the first fruits. Now what does that mean, first fruits? It's a, it's a farming term. Imagine that you were a subsistence farmer where each year you depended for your survival on, on the harvest coming in. And so maybe it's potatoes or it's corn or it's wheat or, or whatever. Okay, so... You know, you've, you're, you're really hoping in this harvest because this is what you depend on. And you know that sometimes there's going to be not enough rain. Sometimes there's going to be bad seed. Sometimes there can be uh, diseases which affect the crop. And so you're really hoping, you're longing, you're waiting. You, you want this, this harvest to be brought in. And that's why the, the first of the crops would be like, yes, 
the first of the batch of potatoes or the you know, ears of corn or the sheaves of wheat. Yes, we know there's going to be a harvest. The first fruits guarantees that there's going to be a harvest. That's how it works. So here we are, Easter Sunday, 2011. We know we're all going to die one day. And we're, we're wondering, how can we be sure that there's going to be a harvest of resurrections at the end? How can we know? That's like a tall order to believe, right? How can we know there's going to be a harvest of resurrections at the end? How can we be sure? And the answer is because there's been the first fruits of a resurrection. Jesus. Jesus rose. And his resurrection is the first fruits guaranteeing. Again, just imagine that you're a farmer. And you're, you're waiting, you're longing, you're hoping. You're, 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 you're just, you've got to have this crop coming in. And then one day he digs up his first potato. Yes! There's going to be a harvest. That's how it is with us as well. We're waiting, we're longing, we're hoping for the resurrection. And 2,000 years ago, the first part of the harvest was brought in. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead in history, you can be absolutely certain that you will be raised from the dead if you belong to him. So how can you know that Jesus rose from the dead then? If your resurrection is guaranteed by his how can he know that his actually happened? Let me just throw out a couple of reasons. These are reasons that God gives us in his word. Think about these. First of all, almost everybody says that Jesus was a, a good teacher who should be listened to. Right? He said, love your neighbors yourself. Right? Turn the other cheek. Forgive your enemies. Right? Almost everybody agrees that Jesus was a good teacher. Repeatedly, this good teacher said, I'm going to rise from the dead. Literally, bodily, physically. Let that just jar you. This teacher, who most everybody respects, taught that he would rise from the dead. That doesn't prove it. But was he a good teacher? Did the other things he say like make sense? Hmm. How about this thing? Second, a second reason that I find persuasive is that everybody knew that Jesus had died. And everybody knew where Jesus was buried. And Roman soldiers were posted around his tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't steal his body and some kind of shenanigans going on. So everybody knew all of that. Where he died, that he died, where he was buried, Roman soldiers posted. But on Sunday morning, the Roman soldiers had fled and the tomb was empty. Ponder that his opponents would have done anything they possibly could have to have come up with the body. This would have solved their problem. The tomb was empty. Third, after Jesus' death, historical documents tell us that the disciples were full of fear. And they're talking about, gosh, I guess we've been hoodwinked. Let's go back to fishing, you know. Are, how's the, are they biting? You know, let's, let's go back to fishing, right? But then just a few days later, they are standing in front of thousands risking their lives to proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Fear, let's go back to fishing, risking their lives preaching to thousands. And when they were asked, what's happened? They said, we've seen Jesus. He is alive. People might die for something that they mistakenly believe is true. Right? People don't die for something they know is false. 
Every one of the apostles except one was killed for the message that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Fourth, earlier in this chapter, chapter 15, uh, Paul says that over 500 eyewitnesses saw the living Jesus, touched the living Jesus, talked with the living Jesus after his death. And he says that many of those 500 are still alive. He's writing this 15, 20 years after Jesus rose. He says many of them are still alive so that any cynics or skeptics who read this could go and talk to them and hear their eyewitness story. 500 eyewitnesses. Anybody been in a jury trial? That would have been one long trial. Okay, witness number 38. Okay, witness number 135. Okay, witness number 239. You know, 500 eyewitnesses. How many would it take to persuade you? I love how God just like totally goes over the top with evidence. Don't you love this? Let's give them 500 eyewitnesses. That'll work. Okay? Eyewitnesses. And then finally, we have four eyewitness-based historical documents which all independently confirm and corroborate that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. One was written by a tax collector, a guy named Matthew. Another was written by a young man named Mark who was an associate of one of the apostles, Peter. Um, another one was written by a doctor, Dr. Luke. And then another one was written by a fisherman, John. Four eyewitness-based historical documents which independently corroborate and confirm the fact that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, literally, really. So you can be absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead. There is massive historical evidence. You don't need to close your eyes and just take this leap off into the dark. There's massive historical evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You have every reason to believe it. And you have no reason not to. And because Jesus rose from the dead, if you're belonging to Christ... If you trust Jesus Christ, then you can be absolutely certain since the first fruit of the potato harvest, corn harvest, wheat harvest, resurrection harvest has come in, there will be a future resurrection harvest. The first fruits are in. Harvest is here. You will rise from the dead. So you have no need to be afraid of death if you belong to Jesus. Okay, what does this mean for us then? So as, I, as I thought about how the Lord wanted us to, to wrap up this morning, I think there's probably three types of people here this morning. Some of you do not yet belong to Jesus Christ. Okay? You, you know it. All right? And we're really glad you're here. We're honored to be able to you know, have any part in, in helping you move towards coming to know Jesus. And you may feel a little awkward being here. It's like, anybody know or whatever, you know? We don't know. You know. You know. And if you do not yet belong to Jesus Christ, I just want to plead with you that you would come to trust him right now. Listen, the only reason you don't trust Jesus, it's the same reason I didn't trust Jesus until God just like hammered me and changed me. I was just too proud. I, there was plenty of evidence. 
all the reasons. I mean, ev- the evidence is just as plain as day for God's existence, for the resurrection, for Jesus' miracles. It's just all right there. The evidence is all there. But could you own up to the fact that it's, it's because of the sin in your heart that you don't, you don't want to bend the knee before him? That's where I've been. That's where I was. 18, I was 18 years old when, when God just changed me. And I saw it was my pride, and he changed my heart as I called upon him. And so I just want to plead with you, would you turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ today? The moment you do that, three things will happen. One is all your sin will be completely paid for. You will leave here a completely innocent person, not because you've made yourself good enough, but because he's forgiven you through his death on the cross. And then his power, like I said earlier, will come upon you and start to change you. Don't think, oh, you know, because I'm not spiritual enough, you know, I'm just not really a very, very faith, spiritual person. That's all right. You just come as you are and say, help me. And he will bring his power and he will start to change you. Can you just come as you are and just say, I need help. I'm screwed up. Help me. His arms are wide open to all the screw-ups. Me, you, all of us, okay? And he will go to work and start to change you and then he'll give you the gift of his Holy Spirit and he will satisfy you. You will feel the love you were created to be satisfied by that you won't find anywhere else. So belong to Jesus. Turn and trust him. What can I say to persuade you to do this? I would do anything to persuade you. Trust him. He loves you. Look at the cross. The tomb is empty. Trust him. So some of you don't yet belong to Jesus Christ. Others of you aren't sure if you do. Okay, fair enough. Be honest. And there could be a number of different reasons for that. I mean, one reason could be because, if you're honest, it's because you're kind of, it's because you got two masters. Remember what Jesus said about two masters? He says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. So if you're trying to serve two masters, like Jesus and money or Jesus and fame or whatever, you don't belong to Christ because you've got you to trust him. You're never going to be perfect, but you've got to lay it all down at his feet and trust him. Others of you, maybe because you really feel like you've just plain sinned too much or there was one sin that was like really, 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 really bad and you just say, I'm, I'm done. That, that, that could never be forgiven. Listen. The only sin that can never be forgiven is the one you won't bring to him and ask him to forgive you for. That's the only one. Okay? So that sin, or those sins, he's saying, bring them! I died to forgive sins like that. Bring them! You'll be forgiven. So don't, don't, don't think because I've sinned so much, because I've sinned so grievously, this will never work for me. This is for you! You are who this is all about. And me, and everybody else here, because we're all in the same boat, truth be told. Okay? Does anybody else have sins like you thinking, boy, I'm really glad he forgave that. I didn't think he could. We've all been in the same boat. And what did he do when you turned to Christ and asked him to forgive you? He forgave you. Oh, my sin. This is the old hymn goes. My, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So you can experience that. I mean, look at his love for you demonstrated in the cross. So maybe it's because you're trying to like serve two masters or you don't think you can be forgiven enough. And one other reason I think maybe 
you're in between is because you don't think you can ever become spiritual enough. I, I already mentioned that. And listen, you don't need to be X amount spiritual to, to come to Christ. You come to Christ as unspiritual as you are. And you say, would you change me? And he will change you. He'll take out the heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. You could leave your change today. So nobody, nobody stay not being sure. Listen, eternity is at stake in these issues. We're talking about eternal heaven or eternal hell. Please, please, there is no reason not to trust Christ this morning. There is every reason to trust Christ this morning. No reason not to. Trust him. Okay, how about those of you who do belong to Jesus Christ? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, what a day. What a day. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And there has been one man, only one man, who has conquered death. It's Jesus Christ. Death has been conquered. The first fruits of your resurrection are in the storehouse. The harvest is absolutely guaranteed. Your resurrection is guaranteed. Believer, do you fear death? You should not fear death. God will give you grace for whatever mode of death he has you experience. He'll give you grace for that. And you will immediately, in your spirit, go to be with Jesus in paradise. Just like Jesus said to the man next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then at the second coming, your spirit and your brand new resurrected awesome body will be joined together to enter the new heavens and the new earth forever. That is in your future. If you are trusting Jesus Christ, because you're trusting Jesus Christ, that is in your future. So the tomb is empty, the first fruits are in, your resurrection is guaranteed. Therefore, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain in following Jesus Christ with all your heart. Nothing to lose. Your, your future is secure and everything to gain in following Jesus Christ. Trust him. Follow him. Honor him. Live for him. Glorify him with all your might. Life is short. Eternity is long. The crowd is real. The joys are coming. Let's follow him with all our hearts. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. I pray right now that you would pour out your heart-changing work right now for those who are here who do not yet belong to you. Lord, we love them. We are so honored that they're here with us today. Would you right now save them by your power? Lord, those who aren't sure if they belong to you or not, help them to be really honest about the reality of their life. And Lord, bring them right now to bend the knee before you, your son, Jesus Christ, and to receive everything that you want to give them. Do that, Lord, I pray. And for those here who are belonging to you, 
because they're trusting you. I pray that right now you would fill them with joy as they anticipate every aspect of the future and that they would feel so certain about their resurrection that they would be unleashed to care for the poor, unleashed to share the gospel with their neighbor today, empowered to turn from sin and released into living life with abandon in glory and honor of you. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.